all the resources we have, our employees, our technology, our vendors, our clients, even our resources, organize them to as efficiently get toward that goal we have. Maybe it's a revenue goal, maybe it's a emotional goal, uh, some kind of achievement, but organize our resources to get there and work collectively. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Welcome to the I Love Mortgage Brokering podcast. This is the most downloaded mortgage podcast on the planet. This series is called the 20 Free Book Series. Now, I personally absolutely love to read. One of my favorite things to do, if I ever get a free day, you'll catch me just reading for hours at a time. And when I read, I tend to run my my reading through filters. And when I'm thinking about my mortgage business, the filter is, how will this help me in my mortgage business? How can I apply this to my mortgage business? And I run it through that filter. And this episode, this series is no different. So the goal is to take the best ideas from today's top thinkers, speakers, and strategists and help you apply their knowledge to your mortgage business. And I absolutely believe if you want to be a leader in the mortgage business, you must become a reader. So in an effort to encourage you to read more books, every episode we give away 20 free books when the episode drops. So free books, yes. Now there's three ways to get a copy. First, visit com slash clockwork and leave a comment on this podcast post. And so the book today is called Clockwork by Mike McCullowitz. The second way to get a free book is to join our VIP club. So go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com slash VIP. And each time that a new episode goes live, we send out an email to our VIP club and they get first crack at those books. And then the third way, if you're like, Scott, I don't want a random selection. I just want to, I want a copy of this book. Go take an, leave us an honest review on iTunes, take a screenshot, send it to us, and we will actually send you a copy of the book from today. Now you could even say, heck, I hate your podcast, Scott. I just want the book. And we will still send you the book. I hope you don't do that because I'll cry myself to sleep on my pillow. The point is, is that we want you to read more books. The only catch to this is we give away 20 copies. So when they're gone, they're gone. So today on the show, I have uh, Mike Michalowicz, who's the author of Clockwork plus Profit First and a bunch of other great books. And I was in- initially introduced to Mike from his book, Profit First. And honestly, if you you should get both books. Like the book is fantastic, especially for a small business owner, entrepreneur, mortgage guy, mortgage girl. It's fantastic for helping you structure how to manage your money. I hated bookkeeping, read his book, completely changed my, my mindset around it and how I manage my money. Now I actually love bookkeeping days. I know it's insane. Uh, so this book, Clockwork, is about this concept of like your business running like a fine-tuned clock and how can you as the lead in your business leave the business and not have it fall apart and so he he recommends and encourages you to, to schedule a four-week vacation away from your business he's not saying do this tomorrow but he's saying build your business so that you could leave for four weeks and nothing would fall apart because I can imagine if you're you know if you're like me you know my mortgage business I think oh my gosh if I left for four weeks I come back everything would be on fire the business would be dead I'd be like oh I'd have to be working at Subway. And so it's really about putting in systems and processes to ensure that that doesn't happen. And so one of the key concepts that I took away from his book was this QBR concept, which is Queen Bee Rule. And he talks about how bees everything's designed and engineered around protecting the queen. The queen's job is to produce eggs. And so it's like, we need to think about our business in a way that's like, what is that primary function that we need to do in our mortgage business? And there's two that I've really thought about. The first is, is prospecting, building relationships. If you are really good at that, then you need to spend more time doing it. You need to be like, oh, and if you're not good at it, you need to get good at it because it's, it is a critical function for building your mortgage business in terms of processing, in terms of, you know, moving paper, pulling credit, a lot of those activities and functions can actually be outsourced. Somebody can do it for you for a significantly you know, less money. 
And so when I think about my mortgage business, I go, okay, the most important thing that I can do is build referral partnerships and generate leads. Because if you got leads, you can then, you have all kinds of options. You can put a team in place, you can hire amazing people, and you can serve those clients. And so that is the primary function. And so in this episode, Mike and I talk about how do you actually, some strategies around this. Uh, It's a fantastic conversation. You're going to love Mike. So check out this interview with Mike. And um, we'll be chatting with you at the end as well to talk about how to get some of those free books. How's it going, Mike? It's going well, Scott. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the book, and you have written many other books, and we'll put links to those in in the show notes, but tell me just a little snapshot about you. So who's Mike? Yeah, who's Mike? So uh, an entrepreneur my entire adult life, but had a uh, epiphany about 11 years ago that made me become an author full-time now. What it was, was I don't know how to run business. Now, here's the irony. Uh, if you look at my bullet point resume, I have built and sold two companies. One was acquired by a Fortune 500. Another was a private equity deal. And you, you look at those bullet points, you're like, wow, that's, that's not too shabby. But it's really the meat in between. I think that's the interesting story. When I grew those businesses, neither were profitable. I was struggling check by check. I was under constant stress. I was blessed and lucky to be in the right place at the right time to get those exits. But I really didn't know how to run a business. One thing I conveniently leave off my resume is I started a third company as an angel investor where I started 10 businesses within the umbrella and they all collapsed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it put me in a position where I lost all the wealth i had made in selling my businesses. I lost all my possessions. I lost my house. I lost everything and had to restart. And uh, I'm lucky. The only thing I retained was my family. Right. And um, said, you know, what? I, I want to be an author because I wanted to understand how to make entrepreneurship more simple. Not easier necessarily, but it could be simplified. So every book I've written is about a process that I didn't understand. Profitability, efficiency, sales, growth. And um, I hope that it serves beyond just myself, but serves other entrepreneurs. And I found, you know, shockingly, my journey is not that unique. Like many of us have these peaks and these really, really deep valleys. So I, I think I wrote my books and I continue to, to serve the typical entrepreneurial journey. Right. And you know what, just what you're saying about how you went through this sort of, you know, you had these great successes with some exits, then you had the sort of crash and you kept your family together. And I've, as an entrepreneur for the last 13 years myself, I've had situations where my wife's looked over at me like, are you like, are you sure you're paying attention over there? Cause it feels <laughs> like you're, you're not really paying attention and uh, you know, some messes, but you know, thankfully as well, we've We've been able to come through it. But okay, so let's talk about clockwork. And in particular, so in the book, you say too many entrepreneurs, they take workation. So what is a workation and why should we stay away from that? Yeah, so there's this classic technique we use. I call it the uh, cram and scramble that ultimately becomes a workation. And what it is, is finally, after years of work and sacrifice, we say, I'm going to take that one week vacation with my family or whatever I'm going to do. But the week before we leave for that week it is this cramming of all this work. Like I have to get ahead and take care of my customers and make sure all the work is done so there's nothing on my plate. Then the hope is when we return that enough work is accumulated that we don't have to panic, but often there's a scramble to catch up. So it's a cram and scramble in between that vacation. But for most of us, it's not a vacation. It's a workcation. And it actually disappoints me that some people actually proudly use that term. Like, oh, I'm going on a workcation. So my break is working more, which makes no right. sense to me. But he- here's how I did it. Because I lived this. I would go on vacation and I'd say, well, I just got to check emails and do a couple things just to stay afloat and stay on top of things. I'll start at six in the morning and I'll only work till eight o'clock before everyone gets up. And here's the reality. I did work from six to eight, but it was six in the morning till eight o'clock at night. 
because right. it was this constant checking and a quick phone call and sneaking around. I was playing this game. And first of all, it's a problem for us as entrepreneurs. We are not in life to support a business. We are in business to support a life. Right. But I think it's also extremely damaging for our business. It forces this codependency that if we are not around, the business is not around. And that means we don't have a business. We have a glorified job. Mm-hmm. So we actually- And our boss is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the boss is a total a-hole because I have to work yeah, for everything. That's me. That's like, I'm, I'm a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Right. So it is actually in the best interest to remove ourselves from the business. And I would actually argue, not even a single week vacation, I want to get entrepreneurs taking four-week blocks away from their business because that is true business independency. When a business can run itself without us, we have the bill to it, but when it can, we have something of true value. Right. And I like that in your book that you talk about basically setting this goal for yourself at a certain date that you're going to take four weeks off. And then it starts to sort of make you think differently about, okay, I need these systems. I need this team. I need this process. And it can be absolutely done in our business as well, in the mortgage business, but it, does, it requires some thinking and it doesn't happen by accident for most people. We're not going to just randomly go, oh my gosh, my business is running itself. How did this happen? It's a miracle. Yeah. yeah it doesn't work but- that way. You know, Sally Scott, that's what most of us think. Most of us think that there's a switch that's magically going to be flipped one day if I work hard enough that one day the business will run on its own or that one day someone will buy the business, which both of them are totally absolute lies. No one's going to buy a business that has an absolute dependency on the owner. Or if they do, they're going to put a significant devaluation on it because that means there's a contingency. If that owner gets sick or decides to quit or something happens, the business value is admonished. Yeah, it's gone. So who would invest in that? The second thing is there is no switch. Like You can't work harder and harder making the business more dependent on you, hoping that all of a sudden the business, which is not a real entity, I mean, it's not thinking, it doesn't just all of a sudden say, oh, I figured this out myself. We have to do the thought into it. Right. So it's a gradual process. The goal is this four-week vacation. I've done it myself. I'm actually now, it's an annual thing I'm doing. My next one's coming up. And here's what happens. The day you commit to a four-week vacation, and and this is the big decree. I encourage everyone to do it. And I'm not saying tomorrow morning, like that would hurt the business. I'm saying a year and a half out or so. Decree a four-week vacation. You will feel all of a sudden a mind shift. Holy crap, I can't do that. Like, oh, what, what do I need to do to do this? And now no longer do we think about how do I get the work done we start thinking, how's the work get done without me? And that's right. the question we need to start asking to make that become a reality. We need to ask better questions. It's something you talk no about. Question. You know, it's interesting. People who come into the mortgage business, because it's got a pretty high income potential. Oh, yeah. always, yeah, I want freedom. I want to be my own. But if they get success, they actually lose their freedom to their business. And so this is why with your book, why I really think that our, our listeners need to, listen, need to read it. Okay. So what is the productivity trap? So explain that you talk about this in your book, but isn't it better to just be more productive? Like I just got to like squeeze out every minute of every day. So tell right. me about why you say that's actually a trap. So when I started researching out this book for business efficiency, I said, oh, productivity is a solution. Everyone knows that. Let me master productivity. So I met with a guy who is an authority in the productivity space to interview him. And I said, what do you think about productivity? And he looks me square in the eyes and says, it's crap. And I'm like, what? He goes, I'm actually leaving the industry because here's the problem. Productivity simply means compressing time, getting more things done in less time. When you can pack down the work you're doing, this open space to do more work. So we take on more work, which means we need more productivity. We pack it down more, take on more work, and we become impacted with work, which means... We are just cranking and cranking and cranking. And if one thing goes awry, one problem, the entire day or month or whatever goes 
AWOL. So productivity puts us at risk. Now, let me also say this. I'm not saying productivity is junk. I mean, we need to be productive. I think it's smart to have a cell phone versus a rotary phone. There's no question productivity helps. But when it comes to our organization, it's the organization or the choreographing of our resources to achieve a common outcome that is the most important thing for business efficiency. We have to figure out where do we want to go as a business. Then we have to look at all the resources we have, our employees, our technology, our vendors, our clients, even our resources, organize them to as efficiently get toward that goal we have. Maybe it's a revenue goal. Maybe it's a emotional goal, uh, some kind of achievement, but organize our resources to get there and work collectively. We're managing a team. We are not trying to be better players. That's the key. That's absolutely true. So one of the things you said in your book, and I, and I totally agree with this, is you talked about mindset being critical because I can see the average mortgage person saying, wait a second, nobody can do this like me. I always joke, they, nobody can pull a credit bureau like me. Dude, you push a button and you review some numbers. Like a lot of people could do that. Why is it that we got to get the mindset right? Because I know that you, you have some great strategy, but if we don't get the mindset piece yeah, right- I mean, like, nothing will happen. Yeah, so tell me how do people, if they're struggling with this, what would you say to them? So I say you're probably experiencing the superhero syndrome, something I've lived with for so long. And that's the, actually the term I would use. Oh, I'm the superhero for my business. I swoop in and save the day again. No one's as powerful, as strong as me. But if you look at the superhero analogy, superheroes are kind of jerks, I would say. And here's what I mean. Think about Superman, Wonder Woman, Black Panthers, the, the hot superhero nowadays. Like, look at these people. What they do is they swoop in and save the world from Lex Luthor or whoever the big enemy is. In the process, they actually disarm and disable mankind from defending themselves. They don't teach the military how to prevent Lex Luthor from doing the evil he does. The police force doesn't get strengthened. They get weakened. They, right. they, they actually get their, their own bat phone to say, oh, please, Batman, come save us. We're desperate. Right. So we become more and more dependent upon the superhero and we as a society become weaker. The second thing is superheroes leave a mass wake of destruction. I can't wait until the movie comes out that says the 50 years after Superman destroyed New York City because right. there's these years of recovery. That's what we as entrepreneurs experience. That's the Incredibles, we, actually. Have you seen the, the second Incredibles? Well, I heard about that, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. They're like, look, you, you destroy too many things. You're not the guy we can go with. Because you're out. You're out. You're, you're, just, you're too destructive. Yeah, I recently saw that. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, but it's the reality. So we as, as business owners, we see ourselves as superheroes. We swoop in. We save that client that's on the verge of leaving us. We, we save that employee. We fix that problem. That no one else can. We push the magic button. But the problem is we are disabling our team, our colleagues from ever taking on that task. We never even hire them because we're superheroes. Instead of having an army that's strong, we're trying to save the day and weakening the army. Also, we always leave a wake of destruction. We don't say it. We're focused forward. We're battling. But behind us is that destroyed city. And so our team members have to clean it up or it just gets abandoned and left behind. Those elements of being a superhero is the worst thing to do. I think the mindset shift we need to make is never call ourselves a superhero again. Call ourselves a supervisionary. Right. In fact, another thing I'm thinking about is I even question if we should call ourselves entrepreneurs anymore. And, and listen, I speak to entrepreneurs. I use that word every single day. But I think even that term is becoming bastardized. An entrepreneur is a grinder, a hustler. Horrible terms, in my opinion. Right. I think it's better to call ourselves shareholders. Because the next time you're at a party and you tell someone you're an entrepreneur, they think you're grinding and hustling. Next right. time you're at a party, you say you're a shareholder. They're like, what does that mean? You, you own a business? Exactly. And I don't work in the business. I make the business work on its own. Right. That's what we should aspire to be. 
Right. And, and that mindset shift is required for you to, because you can read a book like this and you can get lots of great ideas, but if you don't have that mindset shift, you're not going to, you'll be like, no, no, you know, that makes sense, but not my business. Like you don't realize that my business, it's like, I am the dude, right. Or I am, I'm the girl. So in your book, the one story that absolutely blew my mind, and I, I want you to share this is the story of Sir Peter, Le- how do you say his last name? Le- Lely. 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 Yeah. And so tell me about Sir Peter Lely and sort of what you discovered with this guy. And then, yeah, I was just like, holy crap, this is awesome. Yeah, right. When I learned about this guy, I was blown away. So Peter Lely was a prolific, the most prolific painter of the 1600s. He painted British royalty. He was very famous for this thing called the Windsor Beauties. Now, here's the irony. Back in the 1600s, British royalty thought the nobility would keep the bloodlines line. So there was a lot of incestuous relationships. So use the word Windsor. That wasn't in the book, but yeah. 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 Use the word beauty very, there's a lot of poetic yeah. You're related. You're re- that's why you're, you look the same. <laughs> yeah. These women with beards and gnarled faces, like, you know, like that was the beauties, but right. that's an aside. So he went on to become the most prolific and recognized uh, painter of his time because he figured out a clockwork system. Now, here's what he did. If you were a painter back then, paintings were the size of an entire wall, typically massive paintings, and the best painters could do lifelike paintings, indistinguishable between a picture of today, uh, you know, an iPhone picture, and a painting. Peter Lely had this capability. Where people paid attention, of course, was the face. That was where the most features and details were. But these paintings were massive. So Peter would paint the face, then the body, then the background, and this could take a month or so to create a painting. The face was only about 10% of the painting time. He realized that was his super talent, not superhero, super talent, his unique ability that he could deliver. Mm -hmm. He also realized that's where people paid attention. So he decided to paint 10 staged body types uh, in wardrobe outfits in 10 or 15 backgrounds. And what he did was instead of painting the entire painting himself, he would go to the subject, paint their face, go back to his and tell his colleague, Joey, hey, Joey, throw on a number two background and number seven body type. How come Peter, it sounds like he's from Jersey, you know? He's from Jersey, yeah. Well, (laughs) that's where I'm from. So, hey, how you doing? And get me a bagel with some schmear while you're at it. (laughs) So, the thing was, he was the the founder of Paint by Numbers. Right. As a result, he reduced from doing 100% of painting down to 10% of the painting he was able to do 10 times the volume. He did over a thousand, I think it was actually two or 3,000 paintings where his contemporaries only did a couple hundred. Right. He became the most prolific and well-paid painter of that era because he clockworked. He focused on his natural talent and outsourced the rest. We'll be right back with my interview with Mike in just a moment. Now, listen, if you want to take your mortgage business to the next level and you want to add more realtors, visit 10loansamonth.com and check out our free training called The Five Shifts to 10 Loans a Month. It's 45 minutes and then we're going to talk about the five steps you must take if you want to scale to 10 loans a month or more. Um, And it doesn't require, the thing is, is that it doesn't require taking months to build realtor partnerships. It doesn't require you to have a big list or connections. What it does is it requires you to have a plan so that you can add massive value to our realtor partnerships. Um, And we have several strategies that we've used across all markets, big cities, small towns, and it's incredibly effective. So check out 10loansamonth.com. That's 10loansamonth.com. And check out our training called the five shifts to 10 loans a month. Too many people in our business, in the mortgage business, we think we're artists. We are like, we're an artist with a keyboard sure. and a calculator. And we're like, oh, but we're, that's not actually the case. And so when I read that, that was like mic drop moment for me. I was like, that there, 
that was fantastic. So another thing you talk about in your book is this QBR. And so this is an exercise that you explained how to do in the book. And I went through it. It was very fascinating to actually do this and it was challenging. So tell me about what is the QBR and why does every entrepreneur, mortgage broker, loan officer need to actually do this exercise? Yeah, this, I think this is the, the biggest key. This is the heart of your organization. It is the most important element that elevates your business. And if it is ignored, your business will always be squandering and, and struggling. If it is addressed, your business will achieve prolific growth if executed properly. Here's what it is. In the book, I I share a strategy of finding what the most important part of your business is. And I do it through a process called deductive logic. You write down all the potential things and you start removing until you find the one thing. I subsequently found a more efficient way and I'll explain it via example. And then I can show you how you'll do it in your business. The example I use is FedEx. It's a national brand or international brand. Everyone recognizes FedEx. FedEx makes a big promise. And so this is exercise one. What is the number one promise you make to your customers? A guarantee, commitment. I just call it the big promise. And for FedEx, it's delivering packages on time. They promise that if you ship with FedEx, your package will be delivered on time. Well, once you know what your big commitment or promise is, we simply peel back the onion one layer and say, what's the singular activity that most delivers on that promise? I know we do multiple things, but what's the one most important activity that makes that promise reality? For FedEx, it's logistics. We promise to deliver packages on time. Therefore, logistics is it. That is the QBR. It's the essence of what makes that business survive and thrive. If FedEx said, you know what, starting today, let's not worry about logistics. Let's focus on customer service and be super friendly. I don't care how friendly they are on the phone. FedEx is going out of business because packages aren't being delivered on time. Right. The QBR came from study of nature. I I found that what happens in nature often translates into business. The QBR stands for queen bee role. I discovered that beehives are extremely efficient because they follow this exact same process. Beehives scale very quickly because they know the most critical, well, the big promise of a beehive is simply a survivability. It's a very basic level, like everything to make the beehive survive. So their promise is, let's make this beehive survive. Behind it, the one activity that most makes a beehive survive is the production of eggs. Bees die very quickly. So there's a lot of turnover. Yeah. So, I've had businesses like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they got to spawn, right? So McDonald's maybe is a good example. Of yeah. So bees have to spawn eggs. The queen bee is the one producing eggs. So all the bees protect that function. There's one point of confusion though. People say, well, that means there's probably a singular person in my organization that's the most important. It may be true currently, but that's not a position. It doesn't put you in position for success. You know, if that queen bee dies, the beehive technically would be in trouble, but the bees know the queen bee is not the most important bee. In fact, she's very expendable. If she's not producing, they remove her, which means they kill her and eat her. Um, but they spawn- No a waste, new, baby. No waste. No waste, baby. They spawn a new queen bee. There's many queen bees in the queue ready to be spawned and take over that role. Our job as an organization is to determine what is the big promise that we're making. Now, for organizations- this is your survivability and thrivability de factor. What is the big promise you're making that determines your thrivability? Another example, as an author, I promise to make complex subjects simple. So I make simple tools for entrepreneurship. That's my promise. The biggest activity behind that supports it. While I do interviews like we're doing now, I do speeches and stuff. It's writing books. Like if I say, yeah, screw the books, I'll just be on the podcast all the time. My value starts to diminish. It's the quality of the book. So I know writing can never be compromised. It's true for our business too. That what's the one thing that never can be compromised? You have to do the other things, but never to the jeopardy of that core thing. That's the key. That thing must always be protected. 
so I, it was a fantastic exercise. I went through it for our training company and I thought I identified what the QBR was. And then I went back again and looked at it and said, no, wait a second. I actually think it's this. And so this is really helpful, this explaining it with the FedEx uh, metaphor. Now, so okay. We understand that we've got to have a queen bee role. There's a primary function. We understand that we can be the face painter, if you will, for our business, which is that critical function as well. Talk to me about ACDC, not the band. Because um, oh. I've actually, this was a really simple way to kind of sort the, just also since reading your book, I created a dashboard for our business that uses this function of the ACDC thing. So talk, tell me about ACDC and why people need to understand it and how we can apply it. Yeah. So ACDC is the flow of a business. Every business goes through four distinct phases, regardless of what kind of business you're in. It doesn't necessarily go through this exact process in the sequence, but it always hits all four elements. So A stands for the attraction of prospects. Every business must attract prospects in some form. Maybe it's word of mouth, maybe through advertising, maybe some other way, but you must attract prospects. C stands for convert. So those prospects become clients. D stands for deliver. We have to deliver on our promise, whatever it is. And the last C stands for collect. The client must deliver on their promise, which is the transfer of money. Now, some businesses don't do it in that order. You can do an ACCD, which is a attract prospects, make them customers, collect money from them. They pay up front and then deliver your promise and it can get moved around. But what they realize is this is like a chain. Every organization goes through a process that has the ACDC elements. If you and I, Scott, had a chain between us and we were pulling as hard as we can, the chain will break. The interesting thing is the chain will always break in the same spot, which is the weakest link. Our business, as we look at it through the ACDC model, we look and say, where's the weakest link? If we put strain on this business, where does it break? If we fix that one link in the actual chain, the entire chain strengthens. If we fix the one link in the ACDC, the entire business elevates. Most entrepreneurs, myself in particular, I would scramble to fix everything. Everything was of equal importance. I need to fix that, fix that. And I got frustrated that the business was never moving forward. Once I understood the ACDC model, I said, oh, the business is struggling. We have a problem actually in converting customers. And even though I was trying to sell, you know, attract more people and more Facebook ads and more word of mouth, the problem wasn't there. It was in converting customers. We didn't have a good sales script. So we really concentrated our efforts there. And once we got that figured out, conversion skyrocketed and the businesses started growing again. So find your challenge or your bottleneck in the ACDC, fix that the entire business. Right. Elevates. And then it, so once you get that one fixed, you'll then identify there's probably the new the, one, the new one, because the business hopefully grows, puts a bit more strain on the chain. And then you're like, now it's not here. It's going to be, there's the next piece. That's exactly right. So what it does is it gives us a very laser focused approach to resolving our business. We tackle the one issue. Once that's resolved, tires chain strengthens. We find the new next weakest link, address that. It's a little bit like that game whack-a-mole that maybe you play as a kid. You hit the one mole, yeah. the new mole pops up. That's actually the proper way to play a business, not hitting all the empty holes. You hit it where the mole has popped up. Right. The one that's the most important. And what I found useful about this, you talked about in the book, is you have your acquire, convert, deliver, and then collect, right? So that's like the four stages. Yep. So, and you talked about having a dashboard, which I, th I want to talk about this for a second. So you said, and I thought this was a great metaphor. You said a dashboard should be, you should be able to look at a dashboard that lets you see the health of your business really, really simply, but you can't have too many things in the dashboard. Too often I've been like, oh, I got to include this and this. And, right. this. and you're like the, you're the example of the security guard. So tell me about how to effectively build a dashboard. Yeah. So uh, maybe a good analogy that comes right to mind is, is driving a car. When you look at a car, 
it is telling you certain critical things. It doesn't tell you the rotation. Well, actually it does. I was about to say, it doesn't tell you the rotation of the pistons. It does through the RPM, but it doesn't tell you piston one's firing, now piston two, now piston three. It simply says the overall RPM that the pistons are moving at a certain speed. It tells you how much fuel you have. It tells you how fast the vehicle is moving forward. If your lights are on or off, mm-hmm. there's certain key elements it shows you, but it doesn't show every element. It doesn't tell you that, you know, tire in the back is spinning at such and such speed. And this one's a little bit faster because that's inconsequential. What's the overall speed of the car is what matters. Right. So for our business, we need to refine down to the critical metrics that identify the health of our business. The goal is really just to monitor them. And if there's an anomaly, then we adjust. Just like when you're driving a car, you drive, you look, okay, I'm going 72, 72. All of a sudden, you're like, oh my God, I'm going 85. I didn't even know that. I, I, I must have pushed down the gas pedal. I got to pull the gas off. That's the idea of your business. Now, I believe for the ACDC, we should be tracking one metric in each of those categories. Yes, that's, that was the key thing that I, I didn't think to do before. I was like, so each of those, you got an acquire, a convert, deliver, and- Exactly, and exactly. Collect. So when it comes to attracting customers, how many are uh, filling out our form may be your metric. I also believe to start off with, you should try two or three things. So in the beginning, we start off with a, a few, and then we narrow it down to the one that is most applicable. Because maybe filling out my form- is not the most important. Maybe it's people that are actually calling our 800 number. So I should be tracking that too and then see which one best indicates my attraction rate. Do the same for each of the other steps. And then we also identified the QBR. The QBR always must be measured because you know, for me, it's writing words. If I am not producing about a thousand words a day, the rough number, I can't produce a book, which a book ends up being 80,000 words, thousand words a day over a, a year is about 360,000 words. But a lot of that's written for the trash. But out of that, I can get, you know, 40 to 80,000 words, which will produce a book. So I need that metric. Am I doing a thousand words a day? If not, the second I have an anomaly, there's an issue. I think a good way of visualizing this too is if you've ever been, hopefully not, but if you've ever been to a hospital and you watch the EKG or, or whatever they're watching with the heart pulse, you just see that thing, that green blip on the board. That's a simple metric. The day that starts going like this or it goes flat, immediately we have an issue. So a metric isn't to be manic and watching all the time is to be watching for the anomalies. When an anomaly happens, that's a call to action. Right. Yeah. And I loved how, I think it was this book or maybe it was one of the other books I'd read, but you talked about security guard trying to watch 16 monitors and then the bad guy slips right past them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's exactly it. So this is why you only have on that dashboard of monitoring your business it's got to be a manageable number, right? So every movie, every movie does that. It's I know they're just sitting there, or they're eating a sub, and they're not paying attention. Yeah, they're always eating a sub, and one of the monitors has the football game on. Yeah, distracted by that, and then all the criminal needs to do is throw the keys down the hallway, and the the guard goes lumbering down. It's a classic movie trick, but sadly, that's what entrepreneurship is. We're looking at all things. We're distracted by something totally irrelevant. And then this one blue herring happens and we're like, that's the issue. Someone threw keys down the hallway. We're like, everyone run that way. Right. And the business goes out. So a good metric board is like a dashboard in a car. Very clear if there's a significant issue. And what it does is simply trigger a call to action. When something is out of whack, it goes into the red line. Then it's like, holy crap, we need to change things. But also a metric should cause no alarm when it's just humming along. So if your car goes 70 or 75, whatever, no alarm. It's when it goes into this extreme ranges, way too slow or way too fast, that awakens us. That's how yeah. a metric 
should yeah, be here. Okay. So this is my last question for you. And I, I do appreciate your time with this. One of the things that you, obviously you can't do this without building a team or having some kind of team around you, because if you're, once you figure out your primary function, you know, and you can monitor your business, part of it is going to be building a team. Yeah. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, so how do you not punish mistakes? So like, what's the approach to dealing with team members? And you're like, oh, cause there's a tendency in our business, you know, like, Hey, if I would have done it myself, this yeah. wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have lost the client. I wouldn't have lost the referral source. So how do you build, empower them? Like, yeah. So what's the dynamic there? What's your advice? Yeah. Yeah. So we have to move from what's called the deciding phase to the delegation phase. Deciding is actually task rabbiting. Most employers are stuck with this kind of scenario. You hire someone, you tell them, Hey, do the invoicing. They come back with an incessant stream of questions. Initially, it's actually kind of relieving because they want to learn. At certain points, frustrating, like they're idiots. They can't figure this stuff out on their own. But also if they make a mistake, woof, you know, that's punishable. So it's actually the employee's best interest to constantly come to us with uh, decisions for us to make. It protects them. Mm-hmm. But then moves to delegation. Delegation is not the assignment of tasks. I think this is the key. It's the assignment of outcomes. Outcomes is what we want to achieve. So I had a gal here that actually was doing invoicing. I said, instead of go do the invoicing, Jackie, I said, Jackie, it's important that we build clients timely and accurately. I want you to tell me why that's important. She said, well, if we build timely, we get paid quickly. We need money. And if we build accurately, we bring fair to our customers. So that's important to them. That's why those two elements are, are necessary. I said, fantastic. I said, now we have an invoicing process, a best practice. I want you to use this to achieve that outcome. But the second you see something that's not helping us navigate to that outcome, fix it. If you have a question, figure it out because now you know the common outcome we're looking to achieve. So when she'd come in with questions, and that was her tendency because she's scared of getting punished or reprimanded, I had to have the discipline. And this is a discipline of saying, hey, uh, Jackie, you go make the decision. I also had a discipline when she made bad or poor decisions to say, you know what? The fact you made a decision is more important than the outcome. Go fix it now, but rah, rah, you made a good decision. I think the shift that we need to make in ourselves internally is when we are controlling this scenario, it is about ego. It's about, I want the results my way. When I was doing that, I realized that I need to change where I direct my ego. It's not about my control. It's about my empowerment of others. Mm-hmm. I get more satisfaction. I get more service to my ego by saying, Jackie now has a career where she's exploded. And she's killing it. Right? She's killing it. Yeah. And I have 12, actually there's 14 employees now here that are killing it because I've released their reins. I let that feed my ego more than anything. In the past, it was like, I am superhero, man. I fix everything. And I had one employee. Right. And so I don't think we can defeat ego. I think the mind trick is redirect our ego and get more satisfaction out of right. empowerment than control. That's actually a really good distinction to think about because the ego is going to be there no matter what. No right? matter what. We feel valuable. And you talked about how when somebody's, at waiting on you for an answer. They're not doing their work. And then when you're answering them, you're not doing your work. And so right. there's a whole dynamic of like, it's just kind of messy. So I really appreciate that. So where can people find you online if they're looking for you? We'll be in the show notes, but like if they're looking for you nice. or this book, how can they do that? I'll give you two methods. The long way is go to my website, mikemichalowitz.com. The reason that's the long way is because Michalowitz is a horrible Polish long last name, but there's a shortcut. My nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. It's a simple rhyme, Mike Motorbike. I've never driven a motorcycle, by the way. That's the irony. But that was my nickname. If you go to MikeMotorbike.com, that goes to my website. Uh, All my books are up there, free chapter downloads. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. You can get that for free. I'm a podcaster, a blogger. Everything's on the site for free. 
Right. And I also got to give a shout out to the book Profit First. So Clockwork is your recent book, but Profit First, honestly, buy both of them. Profit First completely changed my whole perspective on bookkeeping and managing money. Like I actually, my wife's like, holy crap, what happened to you? And I'm like, it's this book. This book <laughs> my I love that. entire process. So I really appreciate that. So oh. thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll be talking brother. to you soon. Thanks, brother.